Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another edition of our mor- Monday morning, excuse me, live devotionals, both on Facebook Live and on the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. Uh, we hope that these are a resource for you as we continue to together work through the F260 Bible reading plan. Um, this is hopefully a resource that helps you kind of just see what morning devotions can look like, um, time spent uh, in 30 to 45 minutes uh, before kids wake up, before you head off to work, um, kind of separate from intentional study, uh, which is important as well, kind of close to what you get when you go to a Bible study or you sit and listen to a sermon on a Sunday morning. And we are, we've been in the book of Acts and what the Bible reading plan is doing is kind of following the missionary journeys of Paul and Silas uh, or Paul and Barnabas at times. And as they stop in a city or a region, then we're going and we're reading uh, the letters that would later or sometimes previously be written to those regions. And so uh, we read last week Paul stopping in Thessal- Thessalonica and in Athens. Um, and now we are reading the letter of First Thessalonians. I think, believe we are in, I hope we are, uh, in First Thessalonians 3, 4, and 5. So the latter half of the book. So three chapters is what you've read today. Um, if you haven't read this yet and you are listening on the podcast, uh, I think it would be maybe helpful for you. Maybe take five to six minutes to go ahead and read those chapters and uh, kind of jot down things you see in it so that you're not just uh, agreeing with what I'm saying, but you're actually doing some of the work yourself um, of being one who wants to do the work of learning from God's word. Um, but if you don't have time to do that, and this is what you have, uh, we're so glad for that. You could read it later this evening. Um, but I'm going to give us just a brief summary of what we see in First Thessalonians chapter 3 through 5. And there's all sorts of things that are being interwoven in this passage. Um, but there's kind of three primary things that are going, and all of them are getting at heart affections and desires and things like that. And this is really a unique book because central to the theme that runs through all of it is just this encouragement uh, and this love for one another. And so we see kind of different people's hearts towards different individuals in this text broadly. So this isn't super academic or clean cut, but in chapter three, we see Paul's heart for the Thessalonian believers. In chapter four, uh, through the uh, through the first part of chapter five, we see God's heart for all Christians. And in the remainder of chapter five, we see God admonishing all Christians to have a similar heart towards all Christians. And so what's happening in Paul's heart for the church in Thessalonica is that there's some sort of trial that's happened. We saw that in the past, um, in chapter, the end of chapter two, there's something that is going on, some sort of affliction, both in Thessalonica and also in Paul's life that the church is hearing about and the church is getting anxious about it. And so in the beginning of chapter or in the whole of chapter three, um, Paul is writing saying, I was worried about you. You were worried about me. I wanted to hear from you. And so I sent Timothy to see how you were doing, to see if you were enduring in the faith, because it says that he had fear. This is verse five. Um, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and all of our labor would be in vain. And so Paul is writing, uh, wanting to hear a report back through Timothy of what the faith and practice was of the churches in Thessalonica. Um, I think I'm, I'm weaving between saying Thessalonica and Thessalonica. Um, and uh, I've even think I've heard it called Thessaloniki. Uh, so uh, I don't know. Uh, forgive me for uh, not being consistent with that. It's Monday morning and I've heard lots of commentators comment on this. And so uh, we just pick a fun one to say. I'll try to say Thessalonica because I think that's 
probably the, the least weird way to say it. And then in chapter four, um, he begins to kind of talk about, you know, what is God's heart for his church? And we see there in the first part of chapter four, he's pleading for this. He says that it's God's will that you would be sanctified. We'll come back to that in a little bit and defines what sanctification looks like and says this really bold statement on lust um, in verse uh, chapter four, verses seven and eight. Um, he says, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. For whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In other words, to live a, a life full of sexual immorality is not to just disobey what Paul is saying or what Timothy would say or what your pastor is saying. It's actually to neglect and deny the Holy Spirit that God has put inside of you saying that this is not how you ought to treat yourself and this is not how you ought to treat others. And then it goes into um, the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five, kind of this discussion um, that gets at theological truths, but its root, its genesis is actually the heart of the believers where there are some believers who are grieved um, that some other believers have died and they're grieved, perhaps thinking that even Paul were to die. And then you have believers who are apathetic in life. And uh, God's heart for them is to understand the way in which Jesus promises a physical resurrection. That's the end of chapter four, uh, that those who die are not dead forever. And then in chapter five, um, we're going to come back and look at this in a, in a, in a bit too. Um, for those who are apathetic, he reminds them of the day of the Lord and how knowing that uh, God is going to come back, God is going to judge, and we ought to live in light of that in a unique way. And then in chapter five through the end, um, he begins to just kind of give this list of uh, admonitions and exhortations, commands to the believers that, that include all sorts of things. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, um, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient, see that no one repays evil for evil, seek to do good to one another, rejoice, um, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't quench the spirit, do not despise the prophecies, test everything, hold to what is fast, obtain to what is good. Um, greet everybody with a kiss. Uh, so just a bunch of things that he's saying, this is what it looks like for a church to encourage one another, which is a huge theme in the book of Thessalonians, first Thessalonians. So that's the summary of what we're looking at. And what we're going to do now is kind of process through the three places we're looking in this text. Um, we're going to look up. What does this passage teach us about God? All actions flow from right thoughts or right, uh, emotions towards God. Uh, and then we look in, what does this mean about ourselves, um, about humanity, about our neighbors, our, our coworkers, our kids? Uh, and then we look out, how does this change the way we live? And so in looking up, uh, I, I kind of picked up on the comfort and commission of salvation in Jesus. And so that sounds really long, really long for Monday morning, the comfort and commission of salvation in Jesus. But when you look at the last part of chapter four and the first part of chapter five, uh, we see the wonderful work God has done in Jesus to do two things. One, to give comfort to those who are grieving and two, to give clarity to those who are apathetic. There's really this big theme in this text that Jesus's salvation, what Jesus has done to save us on the cross, to pay the debt of our sin and return us back to God, gives hope to those who are grieving and gives purpose to those who are still live, living. So there's hope in death and there's purpose in life wound up in each of these. And we see to those who are grief stricken in chapter four, uh, he says, we not want you to be unaware brothers of those who are asleep. Now, if you're new to reading the Bible, this is something the biblical authors often do. And they're not just talking about people who are asleep. They're talking about people who have died. This is kind of the PC way, um, like how we would kind of say today, they're no longer with us. It's kind of the nice way of saying that this person is dead. Um, and so when he speaks about being asleep, he's speaking of those who have passed away. 
And we know that people are grieving, right? We speak to those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And so there are times in our life when we think of, um, you know, we just prayed on uh, yesterday, on Sunday, for, for two members in our church, one who tomorrow is going to be having surgery on a pretty rare and invasive cancer in her leg. Another one is, is, a, is a young one-year-old boy who, for the second time already in his young life, is having brain surgery down in Phoenix. And it could cause us to grieve, to be fearful of the fragility of life and the presence of death. In fact, I just saw a tweet today. Um, from some secular news organization that said COVID-19 is causing us to think on death and we are not designed to do that. However, we are designed to do that because that's exactly what the God who is writing scripture through Paul here calls us to do, right? He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. In other words, we need to be formed by our thoughts that are hope-driven in this passage. And what does what hope does he give to those who are fearful of those who have passed, who are grieving of those who have passed? It says, if those are in Christ, they will rise again. Do you realize that Christians will share the same resurrection as Jesus? Just as Jesus went to the grave, so too will believers, or just as Jesus went to the grave and was resurrected in bodily form, so too will believers. You see that in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him, those who have fallen asleep. And so what is the hope for those who are grieving? It is if our brothers, if they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will meet them again and we will meet them again with Jesus. It's not going to be just this sweet time to see um, those who have invested in your life once more, but we actually see them at the consummation of all things, physically resurrected by the power and beauty of Jesus. And so he ends with this hope and he says therefore encourage one another with these words death is real death is painful death is why jesus came to die and yet jesus so reorganizes the natural occurrences of our life in redemption that we don't even need to fear death we don't need to grieve um, in a way which is so he's not saying don't grieve he's saying don't grieve like those who have no hope that's really important, okay? Death should be sad. If death isn't sad, then Jesus doesn't come, doesn't need to come and save us, right? If this world is perfect and there's nothing to be sad about, then we don't need a savior. But we need a savior because this world is painful and sin is brutal to our souls. And yet we have this hope that Jesus will raise up. Um, and so this book that's ripe with encouragement of one another, he says that encouragement doesn't even stop in death. God is recreating a community eternally through the work of Jesus Christ um, in the resurrection of the dead, which will come on what comes next, the day of the Lord. And so there's these two things he's doing. He's writing to those who have died, and now he's writing to those who have not yet died, um, but who do have something looming in their mind, and that is the day of the Lord. That's the day when Jesus comes back to judge the earth. And um, in this, he is talking not so much about the hope you have in death, which is what the end of chapter four leads with, but now he begins the way in which Jesus's death and resurrection changes the way you live, let alone the way you die, which is what we looked at in chapter four. Uh, this is what it says, what Paul says in verse nine, for God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
And so here we, we have um, those who are perhaps apathetic in life, don't know what's going on, don't know how it changes anything. And he says, uh, let's say you're not grieving. You're not worried about anyone who's died. Life is pretty good. But here he says, this day of the Lord is coming. God will stand and he will judge all of those for how they've lived in life. But because Jesus has redeemed you, because Jesus has saved you, he has given you what it says in verse eight, the hope and helmet of salvation, the breastplate of faith and love. And so what do we do? We live for Jesus. We have immense purpose in life. And what does that look like most? What does it look like to live for Jesus? Well, he kind of gives us the answer in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So living for Jesus includes all sorts of things. It includes worship, it includes sanctification, holiness, all those things we'll talk about as this chapter continues. But to live for Jesus actually gives us purpose that we get to go to the lives of those around us and we get to encourage them with this as well. Both in life and in death, Christians have a gospel which encourages those who are grieving and gives clarity to those who are apathetic. God has a purpose for every moment of our day because of how comprehensive salvation is in Jesus who went to the grave and rose again so that we too, Paul says in Romans, might walk in newness of life. And so Jesus gives comfort to those who are grieving, gives commission to those who are apathetic. And that's kind of the big thing I saw in looking up is the wonderful work of God to reorient our hearts both towards works for him and love towards others. In looking in, um, I have two things. Um, and the last one has a couple, a few sub points, which we'll just touch on briefly. Um, but we see in this text really the encouragement of steadfastness, right? The, Paul is being encouraged that believers are being believers, that they are enduring. Uh, there's a funny meme that perhaps you've seen, it comes from the Lord of the Rings films, um, where Boromir, you know, he's kind of like this, and he's like, one does not simply walk into Mordor. Uh, and it's funny because, it's funny, and there's all sorts of memes parodying it, but there's this sense where, where we could also say, one does not simply endure as a Christian. It's not something that you can easily do under your own might. When we endure as a Christian, when we continue in faith and belonging and belief and worship, it is a divine miracle not a testimony to human might. And that is what Paul is, excuse me, recognizing in the beginning of chapter three. He's talking about, um, I was so worried that you perhaps had fallen away. But when Timothy went and he heard that you had uh, endured, he says this, but now that Timothy has come to us and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us and we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about your about you through your faith. So there's uh, we, we always look for places to encourage one another, and that's good. But I want to, to really uh, show the wonderful miracle of how encouraging we can when we are just Christian, just blatantly Christian, openly Christian, enduringly Christian to other Christians. Um, I watched, uh, I think it was like a behind-the-scenes uh, documentary on one of the planet earth episodes and uh, they're trying to film a Siberian tiger and they put this, uh, they're, they're super elusive creatures. There's only a handful of them left in the world. And so this crew had this box placed in the Siberian woods um, with just a slit for the camera. And I think every week or so a crew would come and give this guy food, but otherwise he couldn't leave this box. It was a tiny, it was like being in a locker in the woods. And all he was waiting for was for a Siberian tiger to walk by. Um, and when he finally saw that tiger, 
there was this joy that something was filmed that was so elusive and this guy who was in like solitary confinement just became be became giddy with joy and was so vindicated for his life being spent in this tiny little box but you know what the tiger thought he thought i'm just doing boring tiger things he was just walk he was just being a tiger and yet it brought so much encouragement to those who just wanted to see a tiger and when you think about your faith, your endurance by God's grace is a massive encouragement to those who are around you. Because just as Paul is talking about, when you are enduring through the various trials, right? He says, we told you there are going to be afflictions. That's how he opens chapter three. There are going to be afflictions. And we told you that, but I still worried that perhaps these afflictions would cause you to fall away from the faith. And when we endure through our afflictions, whether they're big to others or whether they're small to others, they are afflictions to us. And when we process through those and we neither fall into grief like those who have no hope or apathy like those who have no life, it is an immense encouragement to your brothers and sisters around you. Look at the language Paul uses in chapter nine for what thanks, well, verse, or excuse me, chapter three, verse eight, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. That's profound. He says, I have life to know you are standing fast. It enlivens me. It gives me purpose to see what you are doing. And what is the Thessalonian church doing? They are just being Christian and continuing in it. And then he continues, uh, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy we feel for your sake before God. He is made joyful at the endurance of fellow believers. And so you, when you consider how can you be encouraging to those who are around you, endure in the gospel, cherish this hope. Do not fall prey to sin, press forward in holiness. Do not neglect the promise of God for you in Jesus Christ. And you might think that to be the most ordinary walk in the woods, but to those around you, it might be the thing that makes them to live for that day to see all that God has given you in your life, that the gospel is sufficient so that they might look at their life and say, why would that not be sufficient for me as well? And so that's the encouragement of steadfastness. What a great truth that today, if you endure in the faith and you are belonging to and visible to the fellowship of believers, you have contributed to God's task of encouraging the body of Christ. Um, next, we see God's goals for your life. And so there are kind of three primary things. This passage is filled with a lot of things that God expects us to do. And when we hear those things from God, it just shapes our priorities. We have all sorts of priorities. We have priorities of, of getting a paycheck so we can uh, eat or support our family, of staying in shape, of finding some, something to do to entertain us, of where we're going to live. And having biblical priorities doesn't mean those are unimportant but actually fits above those as a filter through which we look at all of those. And so uh, in this passage, we see kind of three lenses. These aren't exclusive three. These are just three that Paul is emphasizing in the last half of First Thessalonians that are lenses that kind of shape how you're going to live today. And the first one was, is that God, God's will for you is that you would grow in sanctification. This is what he says in chapter four, verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And what does sanctification mean? Um, it, be, it means to be made more sacred. That's kind of a religious word. And um, we realize this in Proverbs as we're going through it, that sometimes to understand these biblical concepts, it's easier to understand what it's not, 
right? That's what Solomon does in Proverbs 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Okay, well, what does that mean? The fear of the Lord. Well, here's what it look, doesn't look like. Right after it says, for fools despise wisdom and instruction. Okay, well, if despising what God has given in wisdom and instruction is what makes one a fool, then the fear of the Lord is being uh, reverently reliant upon all God says and all who God is. And so here we kind of see um, to understand sanctification, which means to be made more set apart, more sacred. A helpful word to, for us to understand that is the word desecrated. We know what it means to be desecrated. It takes grandma's fine china that she gives you, if that's still a thing. Us millennials don't really, we, we get that. And we don't know what to do with it now. Um, but it's to take grandma's fine china and give it to our toddler to play with her tea set in the backyard. It desecrates it. It takes this thing that was meant for a noble, good, pure, valuable purpose, and it makes it common. And so when God's will for us is to be made sanctified, it is acknowledging that when Jesus has saved us, it has given us a unique value, a unique purpose, a unique use, and we should grow in being used for that purpose, which means what follows in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, 4, is that we put off sin, right? He gives this laundry list of things that we ought not to do, primarily sexual immorality. And so God wants you today to grow in being made more sacred to God, growing in what Christ has done inside of you. And what's interesting is if you want to love those around you, if you want to be an encouragement to those who are around you, pursue holiness, it's, if you pursue holiness, we kind of have this monastic view of holiness that if we want to grow in being holy, we withdraw from society, we focus on ourselves, we go to a monastery, we live in the woods, and it has no bearing on those around us. But actually, holiness is what leads to brotherly love. And we see this, just follow Paul's logic here, um, if we continue in chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passions of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, for the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Why should you not pursue sexual immorality? Well, because Paul says um, in Corinthians, it's a sin against your own soul. It hurts you. But why should you not sin in sexual immorality? Because it causes you to transgress and to wrong your brother. And so that means that... Um, like sexual immorality causes us to hurt others, to take from them what is not ours, to objectify our brothers and sisters in Christ for a purpose that is not God glorifying. And so if we pursue holiness, we are fit to love one another because we see those people not as means to our own power or our own pleasure, but we see them as co-heirs in Christ that we are meant to serve, not to extract from. And so the second thing we see in here, a goal for the Christian life is brotherly love. God wants us to love those who are around us. And again, we see this in um, chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. That he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before the Lord and of the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then later on, he goes to talk about how good they are at loving one another, um, not just in the church, but in, in the area. 
of the church. And so holiness leads us to love one another. You could do a word search. I didn't have time to do it this morning on just how many times the word, uh, the word encouragement comes up in first Thessalonians. God has saved you. He has set you apart, but he has not set you apart alone. He has set you apart with a group of believers, a local church that you would encourage them. So what does that look like in your life today? And then lastly, what's another thing that God wants your life to be typified by? We see his will is our sanctification. We see that he's pray- Paul is praying that you may increase and abound in love for one another. Well, look at what else uh, is tied to God's will in verse 18 of chapter 5. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So God's goal is your holiness. God's goal is brotherly love. And God's goal is for your joy. That in everything you do in pursuing holiness and loving those around you, you give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God wants you to be grateful for the wonderful gifts of grace he gives you in his life. God wants you to be joyful, not in a joy disconnected from any sort of substance, but a joy that recognizes that every act of holiness, every act of brotherly love, every act of sanctification, every act of encouragement is not something that's a testament to your might or your power. It's a testament to all Christ has done to redeem you, to save you, to call you, and to transform you. Every act of the Christian life is a miracle that makes us joyful that Christ has done that in our hearts. And so that leads us to looking out. These goals of holiness, brotherly love, and joy um, help us understand what God desires for us. So in looking out, I have one thing. Do something. This text is filled with all sorts of ideas of what it looks like to practice these things, whether it's encouraging those who are walking through a hard time of grief, whether it's coming alongside and encouraging those who don't have much clarity on life and don't know what God has called for them to do, um, to say, look at God, Jesus has saved us so that we might live in him. And look at this in verses, kind of these bookends in 4, 1 through 3. Um, Finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For we know what instruction we gave you through the Lord, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And now look at kind of the bookend in chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now here's this profound thing. Chapter 3 begins with this call. You need to do this. You need to do all these things. Just as you are doing, do so more. And then it gives this list of things in between, right? We see pray without ceasing, do good to everyone, don't be sexually immoral, encourage one another, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, repay no evil for evil, seek to do good to ev- to one another and to everyone. Um, hold fast to what is good. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise the prophecies. Abstain from every evil. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And so there's all, do this, and there's all these do-do-do-do-do's, but then it ends with the promise of God, right? It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. It's calling us to be sanctified, but now it's showing us how that's going to happen. God's going to do it. And then verse 24, this wonderful promise, he who calls you is faithful to do what? To sanctify us, to set us apart, to fit us for all those actions he talked about. He will surely 
do it. He who calls you is faithful. So what that means is you Christian today, take a look at this buffet of actions that should follow what Christ has done. Pick one, pray for that thing this morning and seek by God's grace to do it better. Paul says twice in this text, just as you are doing, do this even more. And so that's the the command to you today is because what Jesus has done is far surpassing all of our wondrous deeds. He can always come and say, just as you're doing, do even more. Because we don't panic and look at our depleting reserves, but instead we look at the wonderful uh, uh, unexhausted glory of Christ and we live out of that. And there's this wonderful comfort for you. And and don't mistake, Paul's calling us, you and me, to respond to this text by putting on these actions. And yet our hope is that Jesus allows us to do this. I love football. Most of you guys know that. And one of my favorite things is watching um, a polling offensive lineman circle around the line and be the lead blocker for the running back. And what the lead blocker does is they block in the lead. Um, all the other defenders are trying to tackle the guy running with the ball. And the goal of this lead blocker is just to create a wake of space for that runner to run in unobstructed. What we see in this text is Jesus is the lead blocker of our race in sanctification. And so this is so different than passivity, than saying, okay, Jesus will get me where I want to go and I can just sit there. Um, No, Jesus is out in front of you. Jesus is paving the way for you. But what do you need to do? You need to run in the hole that he's created. You need to run in this wake of freedom because of the wonderful power Jesus has done to free the obstacles of your heart so that you can actually do this. And so today I pray that we are able to look at this text and see Jesus out in front of us and run after him knowing that he has freed us and empowered us with the Holy Spirit to do just that. So that's our prayer for us today. And would you, would you pray with me as we try to pick any of these things in conclusion and do them in our life today by the power of grace. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a good God who gives us many good things. Lord, we thank you that you have given us, as is alluded to in 1 Thessalonians 4, you have put the Holy Spirit inside of us. And to disobey these commands is not to disobey the commands of Tyler or of Paul, but to disobey the commands of God himself, God in us, if we are Christian. So I pray that we as a church show this encouragement, which is rooted in an informed understanding of the gospel. I pray that you help us to admonish the idle and encourage the weak and be patient with all and with everyone for your glory and for the health and witness of the church. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you missed this, please feel free to check it out on the podcast. Well, you won't know that because you've missed it. Anyway, love you guys. We'll talk to you later. Have a good day.